Good morning, dear friends. It has been a joy for me this past year to be part of the teaching team here during this interim time. And today I want to say how excited I am for you to meet Shane and Natalie next week. Uh, I know Shane really well. He's been in two mentoring groups that I help lead. Uh, I've used him as a keynote speaker at the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. He's a wonderful preacher, and uh, they're both just lovely human beings. You're going to love them. And next week, we will ordain him as Highland's 11th preacher in its almost 90-year history. And so it's a little hard to get rid of preachers around here. I'm living witness. We tend to stick around a bit. Um, but really, even more, I'm just so anxious for the Hughes family to get to meet you. Because we came here in 1991 with two little ones in tow and another one that would come along the way. And since 1991, this has been family through sorrows and joys. So I take great delight in knowing that Shane and Natalie and their kids will be here among us. Well, I want to close this series today. I thought I heard Jeff say, we're sad that it's the end of the David series and Mike Cope is preaching. <laughs> I think there was supposed to be a comma in there. I'm going to, I'm going to hear it that way. That and was more of a but um, than an and. With a, it's an odd text. It'll be on the screens or if you brought Bibles. It's 2 Samuel 23. We'll read part of the text beginning in verse 8. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Josheb Bashebeth, a Tachemonite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eliezer, son of Dodai the Ahohite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pasadamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but Eliezer stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shammah, son of Aji the Hararite. And when the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was encamped at the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. 
but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives, and David would not drink it? Such are the exploits of the three mighty warriors. Well, we've got a text today, don't we? Let's pray together. Oh God, may this ancient story and these ancient names spring forth in new life before us as we imagine a way of steadfast devotion. And toward that end, oh God, please pour through me now the gift of preaching. In the name of Jesus, we pray and we all say, amen. As we go into these final stories, I'm sure one of the things that's obvious is that David was not a one-man wrecking crew. He had people with him. Which is funny because that's not the way a lot of ancient stories were told that involved battles. Like in the Assyrian accounts of their battles, it only told about the mighty and great king. So great was his insecurities that nobody else could be mentioned. And so only the name of the Assyrian king would be there as if he alone fought the battles. But not so with David. He had these compadres with him. He didn't fight alone. You can almost imagine David summoning up his Laurence Olivier, Henry V, giving the St. Crispin's Day speech, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. As you hear the names that are in the text. And I didn't read all the names. If you peek down through, there are a few other names that come, like verse 20, Benaiah. It says that David handpicked Benaiah to be his chief bodyguard. Well, we're told three things about Benaiah. One is he killed two mighty Moabites. The third thing is that he went up against an Egyptian with a spear and he only had a club. So he grabbed the spear and killed the Egyptian. But the story in between is delightful. In verse 20 it says that Benaiah went into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Now what a great story that is. How did that happen? Why did that happen? I don't know. Why would you do that even? It's a snowy day. And where do you want a lion? In the pit. But no, he went down into the pit on a snowy day and killed the lion. I picture David sitting at his desk going through resumes for chief bodyguard. Graduated from West Point with honors. Very good. Three tours overseas. Very good. Went into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. That's the guy I want. That guy will protect me. But the part I read is about these three mighty men, starting with Josheb Bashebeth. Now, first, the obvious. Don't confuse him with other Josheb Bashebeths you may know. <laughs> this was a unique warrior. Says that Josheb Bashebeth killed 800 at one time. He's not some paper-pushing Pentagon general who does his fighting by correspondence. He's been out on the field. 
And then Eliezer, it, it begins by saying that the Israelites are taunting the Philistines. Never a good idea. And then when the Philistines actually show up like bullies on a playground, the Israelites turn and run, but not Eliezer. He stands and he defends the ground. And he's holding that sword so tightly that it says it froze to his hands. Some of you have had that experience. You go water skiing for the first time in years and you hold on for dear life so hard that at the end they have to peel your fingers off the handle. Or springtime comes and you haven't used those muscles in a long time and you mow, 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 mow and you realize at the end, I cannot remove my hands from the lawnmower. And that's Eliezer defending. And then Shama. About Shama, it says that they came after the food supply. And Shama was not the kind of guy who you mess with his food supply. So he stood in the middle of the field and defended it against the Philistines. And just briefly to hit a pause button to say on the side, what these stories are doing for us is helping us imagine what it means to have steadfast devotion. Josheb Bathshebeth and Eliezer and Shama are people in these instances of steadfast devotion with one another and with David. But then this intriguing story comes where they are holed up in the cave of Adullam. And while they are in semi-seclusion in the cave of Adullam, David says, man, I wish I had some water from Bethlehem. Now, apparently, David confused inside words with outside words because he just meant to say it to himself. He's holed up in the cave, and what he's missing is a drink of water from Bethlehem. Why would he want water from Bethlehem? That's where he's from. It was a military version of, I want my mommy. I want something from where I know, a place that's safe and familiar. This past year, as I went back to do my dad's funeral, it, it hit me that we were burying him less than five miles from where he was born, less than five miles from where he graduated from high school, less than five miles from where he met my mother, less than five miles from where I was born. That little place in southwest Missouri is home. And there's still times that there are things, if I think, wow, I would really love to have that, that I think of Neosho, though I haven't lived there in a long time, like blueberries. Everybody thinks they have the best blueberries. They do not. Missouri has the best blueberries. And when I picture blueberries and blueberry cobbler and blueberry pie, I think of Missouri blueberries. And wherever you're from, you have the same notion. If you're from New Mexico, you think you have the best Mexican food. If you're from Oklahoma, you have the best view of tornadoes. <laughs> Everybody thinks they've got the best something. And David just means it as a soliloquy, just kind of talking to himself. Man, I wish I had some water from home. But because those words became outside words, the three heard it. 
And you can just picture them talking to one another and say, did you hear the boss? The boss would like some water from Bethlehem, which right now is a garrison. It's a center for the, the Philistines of all places. And they, because I suppose of steadfast devotion, decide we're going to go get it. Somebody grabs the mason jar and they grab their swords and these three musketeers head out of the cave seven miles from the cave of Adullam to Bethlehem. And when you get to a town, reportedly the two most guarded areas are the gate and the well. So they get there at this garrison and the three of them, probably back to back, are fighting their way in. And they fight their way to the well and one of them sloshes down some water and they fight their way back and then they fight their way back into the cave. And they're there like kids on Christmas morning waiting to give mom or dad what they bought. Again, why? Because of steadfast devotion. The word that David told us about a few weeks ago, chesed, this steadfast devotion, this unyielding love. They, they did that for him. You see versions of it at sports events where middle-aged people who otherwise seem normal, average citizens do crazy things. Guns up, gig them, hook them horns, whatever it may be. There are people back in Arkansas, it was old people wearing snouts, <laughs> razorback snouts to ball games. But here, it's the devotion of these three to David. And what David does is take the jar or the goat skin, whatever it may have been, and he dumps it on the ground. And can you imagine the faces of those three? They have just gone 14 miles and fought all of these Philistines to give the king what he wants. And then they stand there as he pours it down and David says, because of David's steadfast loyalty, I didn't mean it. I never would have asked you to risk your necks so that I could have a drink of water back home. I was just, I was wishing, I was riffing for a minute in my mind, but I never thought your lives were worth me having a drink, and I won't drink it knowing what was at stake. And there we get David at his best, passing on to God, poured out like a drink offering before God, the loyalty that only God deserves and not David as king. Well, there are more names, as I said. I mentioned Benaiah, but starting in verse 24, you get a whole list of names. You read about some of the ones that are familiar from the David account and some that just pop up for us now. But look at the end of the list, beginning in verse 38. The last few he mentions, Ira the Ithrite, Garib the Ithrite, and Uriah the Hittite. 
And it's at this point we realize that David did not always pass along to God what only belonged to God. And a part of me is not happy that that happens in this. It's like, that. it's like, all right, we've done the Bathsheba, the Uriah story. We get it. We've seen lives unravel. We know all about that. So cannot we just go on? Why can't he hide the name Uriah in the middle of the list like the writer of First Chronicles does? So that you're just, you're struggling with names. Anyway, look at those names. You just leapfrog over. No, to put it at the end is like an exclamation point with bold font. And suddenly you go back and you remember that sexual assault. Uh, we actually did the story of David at the Pepperdine Bible Lectures a couple months ago, and I asked Sarah Barton to preach that text. Asked her to preach because she's a phenomenal preacher. Asked her to do that text because of a story I'd read in her book on being called as a woman in ministry. She talks about when she and John lived back in Uganda. We got to go live with them for a month. This church, when Matt graduated from high school, let us go join their mission team for a summer. But she talks about how every week she would go into one of the villages and in the local language she would teach on different women of the Bible to the women of the village. And as the series ended, she asked them, who's your favorite woman of the Old Testament? Now she said in the United States, every hand would go up because everybody would have their individual answer. But it's a communal culture, so they turned and they conferred. And then someone spoke on behalf of the others and said, our favorite woman is Bathsheba which she said was mostly disturbing because Bathsheba had not been part of the study. <laughs> which every Bible school teacher understands that frustration. But then it hit her. We, we Westerners, we, we turned Bathsheba into a temptress. And, and so, but not, not in Africa. They understand it for what it is. They get the Me Too movement before we ever wake up to it here. And Sarah called it the king's culture. Carson described it a couple of weeks ago. The king's culture. Matt Lauer's got a lock in his office, but somebody put the lock there and others know about it. Jeffrey Weinstein's got somebody out trolling the streets. There's a culture that makes it happen. And the king sends, he sends, he sends this man on a in authority, this man in power, and he exercises it. And the next thing you know, there's Bathsheba, and the women in Uganda respect her because they've had that happen by men. And they know what it's like to have to answer to people you don't love and to be told what to do. And many of them had had a child that way, and many of them had lost a child, and they found this identity with another victim of that power, Bathsheba. And then fast forward to the murder of Uriah, admittedly at arm's length. And so it seems odd to me in a way that we have to end this list of steadfast devotion by stepping back in and highlighting one more time and Uriah, the Hittite whom David had murdered. A time when David took what was passed to him and poured it out like sewer water. And yet, and yet David is the one who winds up praying, have mercy on me, O God, according to your 
chesed, your steadfast loyalty. David becomes in the Psalms a kind of lead instructor about what it means to live under God's steadfast devotion. There are times that David reflects it. There are times that we reflect it, but there are times that we do not as well. But this text, like so many others, keep pointing back to God, the one who provides the deliverance, and saying, that is steadfast loyalty. You live in the wake of something that cannot change. He will never leave you or forsake you. No matter what you've done, where you've been, we, we kind of got to forget the Michelangelo David, the perfect, perfectly sculpted David. The perfect human being. Forget Michelangelo's David for a moment and realize that this is the David of the divided heart. This is the David who is part man of God and part Don Corleone. He's part noble king and part Machiavelli, Machiavellian prince who will do anything to stay in power. I took as my theme at, at Pepperdine the, the phrase from Leonard Cohen's song, Broken Hallelujah, because that's David's hallelujah. Yes, he does give us so many of the psalms and the hallelujahs, but it's a broken hallelujah. But really, my favorite Leonard Cohen song is not that one, and my favorite lyrics are not those. My favorite are from Anthem when he, he writes and sings. Ring the bell that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack. A crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's what David is. D David is a bell that's ringing in the Old Testament, still ringing in the early pages of the New Testament, but it's a cracked bell. And the goal for us is not to emulate David, not to recreate David, but to watch David pointing beyond his failures to the God of perfect, steadfast devotion. My dear friends, we're, we're like phases of the moon. We go in and out of how much of the light we're able to reflect. We all know ourselves. We know sometimes we're like the new moon. There's just nothing there. Can't see it. We're not reflecting light. But then before long, there's the waxing crescent, just a tiny little hint that there's light. And then we feel it growing and building, and then it's the waxing gibbous moon where it's mostly lit, and then just Briefly, just for a moment, it's a full moon. And then it's the waning gibbous moon, and then it's the waning crescent. If we look back on our lives, we have to realize that this is not a story primarily about us. As I alluded to Highland's 90-year history, boy, we've got some great things to talk about. But even those things point us back to God's steadfast love, not to us. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. We've kind of gotten to where we think there are two folders and everybody's in one file folder to the other. This one is ingeniously labeled good and this one bad. Those are bad people. Those are good people. And the truth is that the files get garbled a bit. 
And it really summarizes my view of preaching and discipleship that we seek the light of the sun. We seek to reflect the one who is the light of the world, but we got cracks in the facade. But if we'll be an honest church, that's how the light gets in. And the witness and the testimony of Highland then doesn't become, come be perfect with us, but it goes out into the highways and the byways and says, despite ourselves, the good news of the gospel of light has broken forth in us through Jesus Christ and in the power of the indwelling spirit. But the full glory is from the sun, the light of the world, the one who descends from David, the Savior of all. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we admit to you today that there are cracks in the facade. And we invite you, God, to let the light come in that way. In humility, we might receive again your forgiveness. And in joy and gratitude, go out as witnesses in the world. We're thankful to have had this summer to look at the life of David. And we pray that it's led us beyond David to the one who is his descendant, the King of kings and Lord of lords, in whom we pray. Amen.